Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled Simon, I Have Somewhat to Say Unto Thee, Judgment and Condemnation in the Parables of Jesus, was given on May 7, 1991, by Catherine Corman Perry, then a BYU Associate Professor of English. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons, which need no repentance. For his purposes in this parable, the Lord divides us into three groups, shepherds, sinners, and just persons who need no repentance. Surely he speaks with some exaggeration here, for accepting himself, the good shepherd, we all, shepherds and blessed persons, are sinners alike. In some ways, in fact, the Lord seems in this parable to speak not from his own perceptions, but from our perceptions of ourselves. We tend to place sin in categories, to rank it as greater or lesser, and then to see ourselves as better or worse, depending on which sins we commit. Thus, the flexible nature of parable form allows us to identify with shepherd, lost sheep, or ninety and nine. Today, I address these remarks to the ninety and nine, or rather, to those among us who may, for instance, attend church, even in good weather, go visiting and home teaching, even in bad weather, not only bake those cookies for the ill, the depressed, the lonely, the firesides, and the relief society, but try to bake them with love, all the while working to keep harmony in our homes. If you find yourself even temporarily in this group, I would direct your attention once again to verses 6 and 7 of Luke, chapter 15. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Two ideas emerge from these verses that the shepherd anticipates his friend's excitement to be as great as his own over the found sheep, and that the heavens do not rejoice as much over ninety-nine continually faithful people as they do over one repentant sinner. Now, the emphasis that God places in other contexts on keeping the commandments and enduring to the end leads us to suppose that the Lord again exaggerates 
So for what purpose? He does not immediately explain. But surely it cannot have escaped him that such an exaggerated statement would make us feel uncomfortable, specifically ignored, undervalued, and consequently angry. But instead of softening his language, he restates the concepts again in the next parable, this time ignoring completely the faithful 99. Either what woman of either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Immediately following this, we receive what we have come to call the parable of the prodigal son. In the context of rejoicing over sinners repentant, it seems entirely appropriate that we should call it by this name, thus focusing on the father's joy at the return of his no longer wayward son, and his complete willingness to reintegrate the son back into the family without further thought for his past sins. As the context of Luke chapter 15 suggests, surely this is one aspect of the parable. It joyfully reminds us that at the center of all our faith sits the Savior's atoning blood, which can wash us as free from sin as if we had never committed it. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. However, calling this the parable of the prodigal son may lead us to forget that the story actually concerns two sons, not just one. Unlike the earlier parables of the coin and the lost sheep, the Lord chose not to end his story with the prodigal's happy homecoming. Instead, he complicates its interpretation by focusing in the latter half of the parable on the elder son who complains at the mercy extended to his younger brother. Now, the literary nature of parable form invites ambiguity and multiple interpretation. Thus, its meaning is flexible, unfixed, and our interpretations must rely on thorough reading under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We have all had the experience, I suppose, of finding new meaning in a familiar scripture. Frequently, parables go beyond even this and mean more than one thing at precisely the same time. The elder brother in this parable is a case in point. As many scriptural scholars, Elder Talmadge among them, have suggested, on one level, this son represents the elder son, the elder son the spiritual firstborn and only begotten of the Father. He alone can say to his Father, as this Son says to his, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And to him alone can the Father reply, Son, thou art ever with me. 
Reading the elder son in this context, it seems entirely appropriate that the father should promise him all of his inheritance and make no further mention of reward for the younger son. But on another level, the elder son must represent not the Savior, but us, or at least some of us. Surely we cannot imagine the Lord who atoned for our sins complaining when the Father grants us mercy. Rather, in this context, the plaintive whining of the parable's elder son sounds somewhat like me, perhaps like you. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Well, several things stand out in this passage. For one thing, the father wants the elder son to share his joy in the younger son's return. He wants it enough to leave the party himself and go plead with the elder son to come in. For another thing, the elder son judges the sins of the younger son by making them explicit. In verse 13 of the King James translation, we learn that the younger son, quote, wasted his substance with riotous living, end quote. In the mouth of his brother, this becomes, hath devoured thy living with harlots. And finally, he distances himself from the former prodigal by calling him, this thy son, rather than this my brother. The father's response is instructive. He does not remind the elder son of his own sins, but instead acknowledges his faithful continuance. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. But he does, gently but undeniably, rebuke the son's unkindness. It was meet, necessary, appropriate, that we should make merry, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The rebuke comes most clearly, I think, in his reminder of the young man's relationship to the other. This thy brother was dead and is alive again. Not this my son, but this thy brother. The elder son should rejoice not simply because someone his father loves has returned, but because of his own intimate link with the other soul. Let us now turn to another familiar episode in the Lord's life, this one recorded in Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. 
and she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art troubled and careful about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Now those of us with more of Martha than of Mary in us have long felt that this rebuke is unjust. While we do not doubt the overriding importance of listening to the word of the Lord, Does the listening have to be done during dinner preparations? Would it have hurt Mary to join us in the serving, and then we could have all sat down to dinner together? And furthermore, what about the value of our work in the world? If it weren't for us Marthas cleaning whatever we see and fussing over meals, there would be a lot of dirty, hungry people in this world. We may not live by bread alone, but I personally have never known anyone to live without it. Why, oh why, couldn't the Lord have said, You're absolutely right, Martha. What are we thinking of to let you do all this serving alone? We'll all help, and, by the way, that centerpiece looks lovely. What he did say is difficult to bear, but perhaps it's less difficult to bear if we examine its context. In the same way that the father in the parable of the prodigal son acknowledges his elder son's faithfulness, the Lord acknowledges Martha's care. Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Then he delivers the gentle but clear rebuke. But the rebuke would not have come had Martha not have prompted it. The Lord did not go into the kitchen and tell Martha to stop cooking and come listen. Apparently, he was content to let her serve him however she cared to, until she judged another person's service. Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. Martha's self-importance, expressed through her judgment of her sister, occasioned the Lord's rebuke, not her busyness with the meal. An instant that crystallizes the Lord's displeasure at our judging others occurs in Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees, Simon, invited the Lord to a meal at his home. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, 
I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence, and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. The Lord could hardly have said anything more disturbing. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. The way he has phrased it, the woman loved the Lord much because she needed him much, and it was her sins which created that need. In other words, the greater our sins, the greater our capacity to love, and the fewer our sins, the less we need the Lord and less our capacity to love him. This sounds like an even more disturbing version of joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. We need, I think, to examine the context as before of the Lord's reply. As the woman begins weeping on her Savior's feet, Simon makes at least two judgments. One, that the woman is a sinner. And two, that Jesus is no prophet, or he would know her to be a sinner. Both of these judgments remain unvocalized. Simon speaks them within himself, not aloud. Interestingly, though, the scriptures continue, And Jesus answering said unto him, in other words, in a wonderfully ironic demonstration that he was indeed a prophet, the Lord answered Simon's unspoken thought. Further, Simon expected that the Lord should perceive the woman's sins. Instead, he perceives and voices Simon's unkindness. As we might expect, his rebuke follows the pattern of those we examined earlier. The Lord might have responded, as he does in the story of the woman taken in adultery, by reminding the crowd, excuse me, by reprimanding the crowd for their judgment of the woman, by reminding them of their own sins. In both that case and this one, the Lord does not argue over the sins of the woman. Rather, the issue concerns the onlooker's right to assess or even to notice those sins. But this time, as with the elder son in the parable, he acknowledges Simon's at least relatively successful efforts at righteous living by associating him with the debtor who owed less 
and by suggesting that Simon's sins may indeed be fewer than the woman's. And then, with the exaggerated phrasing we heard in the parables of the lost sheep and coin, he follows this not with praise of the just person, but with a reaffirmation of his love for the repentant sinner. Again, the rebuke comes after the Pharisee's silent condemnation of both the Savior and the weeping woman. Simon's judgment was no less present for being unspoken, and the Savior's displeasure was no less keen. Having established then a context of judgment preceding rebuke in these cases, let us return briefly to the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin in Luke chapter 15. The first two verses establish the context that prompted them. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them. These verses, in fact, establish the context for everything that occurs in chapter 15, including the parable of the prodigal son. Seen in this light, the portion of the parable dealing with the elder son's unkindness becomes central to its interpretation, since the Lord directed the story not only, perhaps not mainly, to the publicans and sinners present, but to the scribes and Pharisees who judged them. Thus the message is multiple and complex, leaving no one room for self-satisfaction. It would seem, then, that the Lord meant it when he said, Judge not, that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. In the parables and incidents we have explored, we have seen the Lord return the sharp judgments they made to the heads of those who made them, so that, quite literally, they were measured by their own standards and found wanting. We might note that when the prophet Joseph Smith reached Matthew chapter 7 in his translation of the Bible, he changed the wording to judge not unrighteously, that ye be not judged, but judge righteous judgment. At first glance, this seems a liberating change. We need not refrain from judgment, but merely judge righteously. But what constitutes righteous judgment? And who qualifies to make it? Simon? Or the elder son? Martha? Or the Pharisee? Or me? Or you? While there are many things we must make judgments about, the sins of another or the state of our own souls in comparison to another seems not to be among them. In his translation of the Sermon at the Temple, in 3 Nephi chapter 14, the prophet chose to leave the Lord's words as they appear in the King James Version of the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, that ye be not judged. Luke phrases his version of the passage even more explicitly. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, 
and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. In a familiar passage which follows this, the Lord reiterates his message not to judge, but this time by explaining why we should not. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou seek clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. In other words, our own sins, no matter how few or seemingly insignificant, disqualify us as judges of other people's sins. If, therefore, we wish to judge our associates, we might wisely observe the Savior's advice to the Nephite Twelve. And know ye that ye shall be judges of this people, according to the judgment which I shall give you, which shall be just. Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. Here the Lord links judgment with the individual doing the judging and concludes that only those who are like him can make his judgments. In the meantime, perhaps we would do better to cast ourselves as the repentant prodigal rather than the elder son, and to sit weeping for our own sins at the Lord's feet rather than to look over his shoulder judging another's. That we may do this, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.